0: Well, good morning, church. It's good to see all of you here today. Want to welcome all of those uh, joining us through the internet and streaming this morning? Good to have you a part of us. You know, I, I want to today. I kind of want to begin the way we finished last week. As a matter of fact, if you want to go ahead and throw your Bible open, you know that today we're going to be in James 5. Last week we were in James four, thirteen 13 through 17. And what we saw in verses 13 through 16 was a very simple, a very profound truth. As a matter of fact, it, it almost takes on the air of a cliche. We have no promise of tomorrow. Some people may think that's a cliche. No, it's actually scripture. We have no promise of tomorrow. And, and so that idea is developed in verses 13 through 16. And then it's applied in verse 17. To know the right thing to do and not do it, that, that's a sin. And what that's talking about in connection with verses 13 through 16 is when you know the right thing to do and you don't do it today... You know, folks, it's so easy. Remember we said last week, often it's when we're sitting in church, right? We're we're sitting in here and we think, boy, I need to be a, a better this. I need to be a better parent, a better mate. Boy, I need to do this this week. I need to say I'm sorry. I need to say thank you. I need to say I love you. I need to do these things. And we really intend to do them and then we launch into tomorrow and into the rest of the week. And a lot of times it doesn't actually come about. And that's why the scripture says, tomorrow's not God's will for you. Today, today is God's will for you. Do you realize the anxiety, the fear, the complexity of life that is immediately taken off the table when you just start doing what you know you need to do right here today? Now we ended the service with that truth and we said, you know what? Through this room, and I'm talking about today right now, not just last week, through this room right now are people in here who know you need to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to become his follower. You, you know that. You know, oh, I'm thinking about it. I'm working on that. I'm kind of... You know you need to be a follower of Christ. Today's the day. You're, you're not going to find anywhere in his word where he says, you know, here's what I want for you. W- w- want you to wait a couple months on that. You know, why don't, why don't you come back at Christmas and we'll deal. God's will for you is today that you would step forward and become his follower. Some of you have been thinking about becoming a part of this church family. Now, I'm not talking to you if this is your first time here, or maybe you've been a couple of times and you don't really know where you are on that. But there's others. You have been coming. You are here. You would say, the Heights is my church well, when you open God's Word, what you find is He wants you to become more connected, not less. He doesn't want you out on the fringes. He, he wants you in the center. And you know God's leading you to be a member here. Today is the day. The Bible says God's will for you is today. So here's what I want you to do. We had 18 last week and several out at Midlow that, that responded to that. Isn't that awesome to hear? And there's some in here today who need to do the same thing. Go ahead and clap. Don't hold that up. It'll... Cause palpitations or something if you hold that in. You know what I want you to do as we, as we begin to start today's message. I want you to be thinking and praying about it. I want you to look at James 4.17 and ask yourself, am I one who needs to be responding today? When, we, when we're finished here, you go out these doors straight to the back. Big giant window back there. There's a desk on the left hand side and there'll be a group of people who came here this morning to be standing right there when you walked out. To be able to have a conversation with you, answer questions for you, and, and kind of help you come to that place where you step right into God's will for you today. Amen? You start praying and thinking about that right now. Hey, you know when the, uh, we'll, we'll go home, after we do all that, we'll go home and watch some football, right? You know, the, the NFL today has, I say today, they've had it for about 25 years, but they, they have this thing called bye week Right? No game. They, 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 they get a game off. And, and most college teams now have a bye week in, in their schedule. Now, I just want to say as a fan, I hate bye week. I have no use for it at all. You know, like My Aggies yesterday, you know, this was their bye week, so they didn't play. You know, I just, I just wander around the house aimlessly. There's no, there's no victory to celebrate. There's no loss to wallow in. I think, but the only way I thought this weekend could get worse is if the Broncos had a bye week and they were off today. I don't think I'd get out of bed on that weekend. My college team and my NFL team, what's the point? Now, I may hate bye week and I really do. But I'm guessing it's a pretty good thing for the team, wouldn't you? I mean, to have a week where a game's not right in front of you, that you can kind of step back, retool, rethink. Uh, Maybe, you know, some players need some healing, fix some problems. Maybe just get some rest. Boy, it's a grind to get beat up every week. And so, you know, you just need some rest. Hey, folks, what would you say if I told you that James appears to have put a bye week in the Bible for us? You don't care. Okay, well... I was going to let you go, but since you don't care, we're just going to stay here now until about three o'clock. How's that feel? Now, I'm going to tell you something. If you've been, we've been walking through James now for, since the end of July. So this is like our 10th, 11th, 12th week. And if you've been here a a good bit of that time, all that time, you know, we're getting beat up every week, aren't we? I mean, we are getting beat up by James. Now, let me do a quick review as we're nearing the end. We're, We're looking at chapter five. A couple more messages and we're going to be done. You know that James is the half-brother to Jesus. And, and as he grew up with Jesus, he didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. As a matter of fact, he not only didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God, he thought Jesus was crazy. He thought he was an embarrassment to the family. And, and, and just, you know, that whole, you know, who's going to believe their brother's the Son of God? You can't go there. But then something changes. Something changes and he does believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He becomes a a pastor. He becomes one of the key leaders of the church in the first century. And in a part of that role, he delivers to us this letter titled after him. What would make a brother, a half-brother, believe that that his half-brother is the Son of God? The resurrection did it for James. He saw Jesus come out of that grave. He saw Jesus conquer death and it changed everything. Even to the point, not that I would just say, oh, I believe, but that he was willing to die for that. And he did. He was martyred. He was violently killed for one reason. He believed that Jesus was the son of God. So he took his faith very real. And it's with that intensity that he delivers this letter. You know, he doesn't want to sit around and talk about how your faith gives you a warm fuzzy and it's there for you on a dark night. Man, he wants to talk about where's your faith living. As you just saw in the video, where's your faith being put in gear? And as we have moved from one passage to the next, to the next, to the next in this letter, we've seen these practical places where where James is challenging us, take this faith off the shelf. Here's how you you live it. Here's where you live it. Here's where you're supposed to be living it. And that's what we've been dealing with And I don't know Maybe y'all haven't so much to me I leave here every Sunday feeling beat up a little bit I mean James just doesn't let He doesn't. I don't think he cares about my self image (laughs) I don't think he cares how the passage made me feel He says man let's live the faith And and so we've been hearing this week after week But today the good news is James isn't writing to you and me Now I'm not saying James isn't going to beat somebody up No he's going to go after somebody Just not you and me Amen Let's see who he goes after. Now, as we turn there, I would just not trust what I just said, that he's not coming after us. I I wouldn't trust it if I was you, but let's see what happens. Look in your Bible, James chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 1 through 6 today. James 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver have become worthless. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh in hell. This treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The wages you held back cry out against you. The cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every whim. Now your hearts are nice and fat, ready for the slaughter. You have condemned and killed good people who had no power to defend themselves against you. Wow. Man, don't you just kind of read that thing? Man, who put the burr in his saddle? I mean, that, that is not a passage that's going to win any awards for the feel-good passage of the year, is it? I mean, did you hear those phrases? Weep and howl. Your, 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 your flesh burning like fire in hell. The day of slaughter. Boy, he's clearly after somebody. Aren't you glad it's not us? Yeah, he starts off the passage there saying the rich. Now, am I saying nobody in this room is rich? No, I'm Quite confident, we got quite a few people who, you yeah, know, you've got means, you've got ability, you make good money. But when we hear the word rich, that's not what we're thinking about, is it? We're not just people who who have money and have. But when we hear the word rich, maybe in the olden days we're thinking of people like Vanderbilt and Rockefeller, right? Or or today we think maybe you know the Warren Buffetts and the and the Bill Gates. That's the rich. And those are just the famous ones. But there's thousands like them. Thousands and thousands. I mean, they're the, 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 the yacht crowd, right? Uh, they're the brokers of billion-dollar deals. That's, that's the rich. I mean, we look at them. There is a wealth. There is an opportunity. There is an ability there that is nothing like I have, you have, that we're ever going to have. That's the rich, right? Right with me. Hey, y'all. Slow today. Pretty weather out there. You should have had the coffee in you. Hey, we're not ever going to look at ourselves like those people. But you know what? If you make $25,000 a year, you are in the wealthiest 2% of the world. The wealthiest 2%. 98 out of every 100 people who walk on this planet will never have what you have. We'll never enjoy what you enjoy. I don't know about you. I read that. I look at that. I say, well, it sure doesn't feel like it. I, I, I don't feel like I'm a part of the wealthiest 2% in the world, the whole, the whole planet. And part of that is you and I can look out there and we always see more than we have. There, there, there's always out there more th- than what we possess. But as we're looking forward to all that that, that we don't have, we don't see the billions The billions that are behind us. That look at us really the same way you and I look at Buffett and Gates. They look at at us like that. We are the wealthiest 2% of the world. And and, and the world looks at us and thinks, I'll I'll never have that kind of power. I'll never have that kind of opportunity. And, And, you know, folks, a big part of this, when you look at this kind of number, we know that the billions out there, Genesis 3, the fall of mankind, the product of that is a plague of poverty on our planet. But yet, when I refer to a statement like this, it's not just an issue of poverty. It's, it's just what we have in America. It's what we enjoy in America. I have had an opportunity to travel over a lot of the world. And I've, I've had an opportunity to be in the apartment, to be in a house uh, of somebody that in that community was a, a mover and a shaker. In that community, I don't know if I would use the word they were wealthy, but they were well-to-do in that community. In that community, they were who was looked up to. And I've been in their homes. And you know what? I've yet to be in a home. From China to Russia to Indonesia to, to Ecuador to Romania. I've yet to be in a home that would add up to the average run-of-the-mill house in this congregation. I'm talking about some of the good house. The average. Oh, there's nothing special about my um, The average home in this congregation is, is, is more than most of the world will ever step into. You know, there's kind of a, when you go on mission trips, you like, you like to take pictures because you, you fall in love with these people. Whether you're ministering alongside them or whether you're, you're ministering to them. And so you take pictures because you, you want to, hey, here, here's my family or here's where I'm from or you show them an event or a, a picture of a city. I went to, went to Indonesia a while back, a place that averages 85 degrees, 365 days a year. Okay. And, and so I had a picture of, of one of our recent snowstorms. Man, talk about showing them something they don't see or experience. So you, you do that. You show them pictures like that. But there's this kind of, there's this rule across the mission field. There's this rule across, not just in our church and the teams that, that we send, but, but really across mission agencies, across America. As we go out in the world to do missions, you don't take a picture of your house. When you're out on the field, you, just, you don't show them a picture of your home. It becomes a barrier. They can't understand. They can't process How we live. Now, you know, folks, I I, I can stand up here and talk till I'm blue in the face about statistics like this or stories about homes. The fact is, when we get up here and leave in a moment, we walk through those doors, we don't feel any richer than we came in, do we? I don't care what percentage I am. I I don't feel rich. I don't feel that way. And again, why? Why don't we? Because we always see more in America. We always see more than what we have. We always want more than what we have. There's a, a, a group called Media Dynamics. And they did a, a study of our, of our media consumption in 2014. And they were looking at how much time we spend with the internet, with radio, TV, newspaper, and magazine. Th- those five major media outlets. How much time a day compared, compared to the olden days. And so in this study, they found that in the 40s, now obviously in the 40s, they didn't have the internet. But, but in the 40s, we spent an average of two and a half hours a day with one of these things in front of us. Two and a half hours a day. You think the number's gone up or down? Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> way up. Yeah, we all know that. 10 hours a day. That's the average now that, that we're in one of these things, that one of these things is in front of us. 10 hours a day. Now, do you know what happens in that 10 hours? You and I are shown 360 ads. 360 advertisements. And you believe that number's down from several years ago? Because of Hulu and Netflix and DVRs. We can get rid of most of the commercials, right? That's good news. Still today, even taking into account those things, 360 ads. Do you know what's happening there, folks? 360 times a day, you're being shown what you don't have. 360 times a day you're being told life could be better life could be easier life could be more comfortable life could be more fun if you just had you know there's a, there's a uh, there's an ad a little commercial right now by dunkin donuts that says america runs on duncan right no it doesn't you know what america runs on discontent Everything about the media industry is keeping you and I just a tad discontent. And so we strive. We can't help it. I want more. I want better. And by the way, I'm not here today to say that there's a wrong in that. Not, not here to say that the activity of working hard, wanting better, wanting more, oh, that makes you a bad person. No, it doesn't. But what happens, folks, is as you and I are striving for better, striving for more, there is a very razor-thin, thin, fine line that we can cross, and we will never know we've crossed it until we're way on the other side. There's no warning sign. You cross this line, you don't, no, that's not going to happen. No lights are going to flash, nothing. You're gonna, we're going to cross this line, go sailing past into Envy. Envy. And envy can destroy your faith. Envy can destroy your relationship with God. I want to show you a picture of this. It happens in Psalm 73 if you want to, want to turn there. Keep your spot in James 5. We'll, we'll be back. But if you want to turn to Psalm 73, there is a... Of course, you know, most of the Psalms are kind of written and come, come off sounding like poetry. But Psalm 73 is, is actually a story. And, and this psalmist is, and, and it's, I love this this passage. To me, it's, it is what absolutely, it's not the only one. It's just good evidence of what makes the Bible different from other religious writings of the world. Other r- religions of the world. Because in Psalm 73, you have this guy just dealing with the reality of life. And, and he's going to say things like, hey God, I don't know that following you. I don't know that it's paying off that much for me. Did you know the Bible said something like that? You know why it says something like that? Because it's real. It's real. Even when you love God, even when you're trying to follow God, you can have moments where you think, this ain't working. This ain't paying off for me. And that's what we're going to see a story about here. And let's see how that comes about, why it happens. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. Now, that sounds like what we expect to hear in the Bible, right? Now look at verse 2. But as for me, I came so close to the edge of the cliff. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. Gosh, what happened? Why is that? For I envied the proud. When I saw them prosper despite their wickedness, they seem to live such a painless life. Their bodies are so healthy and strong, they aren't troubled like other people or plagued with problems like everyone else. You know, what's interesting here, folks, and when you start getting overwhelmed by envy, when you want that out there, you know what starts to happen is you start to exaggerate how good out there is. You start to see in that more that is right. I mean, do you realize what he said? These people don't ever have problems. Now, you know what? There's an element of truth to that. They, they may not seem to experience some of the things that, that people who aren't rich don't experience. But you know what's odd? Did you know that statistically, the rich enjoy divorce as much as you and I do? The rich enjoy suicide as much as you and I do. They have the same addiction problems. Are you ready for this? They have Many of them have the same exact financial problems. How, do the math on that. They have the same addiction issues. I mean, folks, however you might measure dealing with the problems of this world, did you know they don't seem to be escaping any of it? But... We're just like this guy in the Psalms. Man, we look at them. man. Oh, man, it looks like nothing but roses comes up in their life all the time. It's always happy. It's always good. That, that's what he sees here. But that's, that's exaggerating. It might be an element of truth, but there's a great exaggeration there. He goes on to say, I love verse 7. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. He's a little bitter when he says that. Do you feel it? He ain't happy at this point. Now I'm going to skip a few verses and we, we come down to verse 12. Look at these arrogant people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Now if this is what you're seeing and this is what you believe, then you're going to come to the accusation he arrives at in verse 13. Was it for nothing that I kept my heart pure and I kept myself from doing wrong? Hey, all I get, now see he exaggerated how, how good the rich have it. Now he's going to start exaggerating. I'm not saying there's no truth to it, but really, aren't you exaggerating a little bit? All I get is trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Really? Every single morning? Every single morning? So that's that's where he is. That's what he's thinking and feeling. So he comes down, verse 16. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. What a difficult task it is. And then he, all of a sudden, he gets an answer. All of a sudden, this whole problem gets cleared up. Verse 17. Then one day I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I thought about the destiny of the wicked. Your translation may say, I walked into the sanctuary and I remembered the end. Now what's going on here? This psalmist, by the way, his name's Asaph. Normally when we think of the psalms, we think of David, right? Because most of them are written. Over half of the Psalms are written by David. But there are other contributors. Moses has a Psalm in here. Asaph has a number of Psalms in here. And so Asaph is saying, Hey, you know, I'm walking to God. I'm walking along and I I love God. And I see the greatness of God. And and then I slipped. What did he slip on? It says here he he did the math. (laughs) He said, God, I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm having coffee and I'm looking out the window and I... And I, and I just noticed this same group of people over here that I'm always watching go in and out and go to work. And man, Lord, that group of people—they're wicked, they're evil. They don't—they don't love you. They don't love your ways. They're not living for you. But God, it doesn't seem to be hurting them any. Lord, they sure—they sure like they—they look like they're getting along just fine without you. As a matter of fact, they get richer and richer. They—they they look happy. It doesn't ever look like anything's wrong in their life. But then, Lord, I look out the other window over here, and there's some of my friends, some of us, we, you know, churchgoers, and man, we're trying to live for God. And, Lord, I look over at that group of people, and, man, God, it just seems like we're just fighting. Just fighting to get from one day to the next. Just fighting to survive. And, it, man, when you start weighing that, when you start saying that, then you're obviously going to come to the accusation that he comes to in verse 13. You're going to ask this question, what's the point? What's the what's the point of being obedient? It doesn't pay off. You know, as, as as envy begins to swallow us, you know what you'll find is that you begin to measure everything in life by money and stuff. You'll measure whether you're enjoying marriage. Whether you enjoy marriage, whether you enjoy God, whether you enjoy yourself, everything just becomes getting measured by money. And and, and stuff. So how does he get this resolved? Man, all of a sudden he just flies up on the answer. He says, hey, you know, one day I I walked into church and I I was sitting here, maybe before the service, maybe during the service, preacher going long. Yeah, 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 yeah. And all of a sudden just this thought came into my head and I remembered, oh, wait a minute. The end. Eternity. He he remembers where the rich without God... And that's the operative word, not rich. The operative word is without God. He remembers where the rich without God end up. You know what happened there is he got stuck on a single page... Can you imagine if I walked up to you and said, hey, hey, maybe this fall, hey, I just read this great mystery novel, a lot of intrigue, it's fast moving, you'll love this. Here's this book, go home, go home and read it. And, and you pick the book and you're looking at it and, say, hey, and it's 350 pages. And I say, hey, look at, look at page 211, read, read page 211 real quick. Yeah, right here standing in front of me. So you kind of awkwardly open the book, look now at 211 and you read page 211, you say, okay. And I say, well, what'd you think? Did you like it? Like what? The book, did you like it? Well, I, I don't know if I like. It. I just read one page. I don't even know if I know what the story's about with just one page. Do you know that's just what happened to Asaph? You and I can get stuck judging a book when we're on one page. And you know what, folks? The story that you and I in is not three hundred and fifty pages. It's an eternal story. You can't put a page number on it, but to try to help us process that, let me do that. It's, it's going to fall way short. But let's say you and I are in a 10,000 page story. In your life, my life, what's our life in a 10,000 page story? Page and a half? Two pages? But see, in envy, we can get stuck just measuring what's going on on that one page. And pretty soon, we're judging the whole book based on this one page. Man, I'm judging God, I'm judging eternity, the story. I'm judging my life based on this one page. And when Asaph says, I walked into church, I sat down and I remembered the end. It's like he's saying, oh, wait a minute. I'm making this whole story about what I see on one page. I can't do that. you, you got to see the whole story. you got to see the eternal story. And that's where he says, and I remembered their end, and you know, right next to Psalm seventy three seventeen, you could put in parentheses James chapter five one through six because you know what James five is. James five is describing the end for the rich without God. He says, man, here they are, they're walking through life, enjoying life, they're, they're comfortable, they're having fun, they're successful, they have power, they have influence, and their money's given them that. Their money's given them that kind of ability, that kind of opportunity, and then all of a sudden they come flying up on, and that's how it happens. We fly up on the door of eternity. For everybody, you may have a long protracted illness and you feel like death is coming so slowly. I promise you, no matter who you are, you are going to fly up on the door into eternity. And you're standing there and instantly, instantly your money becomes worthless. You know, that's not a statement just to the rich. That's a statement whatever economic clash you think you're a part of, whatever level of wealth you think you have or don't have. It's true for every single one of us. We come flying up on the door of eternity and instantly what makes the world go round, what gives us our ability, what gives us our security becomes instantly worthless. It's meaningless there. The Bible says it this way, Psalm 49, truly no man, nobody in here, nobody walking on the planet. No man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Look at that last phrase. There's no amount of money you could ever possess that would keep you from seeing the pit of hell. Money is worthless in that moment. Proverbs 11 states it even simpler and faster. Riches do not profit in the day of death. Period. End of story. They're meaningless. Worthless. They don't help. But righteousness is what delivers from death. It, it, it's righteousness that gets us out of that. So the big question on, on my heart and your heart should not be what's my bank account look like. The big question in our lives is how am I going to be found righteous before God? Now folks, the, I, I, I keep addressing the rich without God in this passage. I want you to know something. God's not against the rich. He, don't, he doesn't have anything for them. He's out to, to get them. God's quite fine with rich. Riches come from him. And and whatever page you're on in your story, and whether you would define that page as rich or poor or somewhere in between, the fact is, in Christ, being saved, you and I are going to a part of the story where for eternity we are wealthy. For eternity we enjoy prosperity. For eternity we never experience a, a, a single need. That's where we're going. So man, God's got riches. He's not against riches. He's the one who laid a main street down made out of gold. God's not against riches. You know what else God's not against? God's not against those without God. He's not against the lost. He sent his son so that those without God could become those with God. He sent his son so that those who are lost could be saved. God's not against the rich and he's not against those without God. He gives, paints, he gives such a harsh warning. He paints such a harsh picture in James 5, not because he's against them, but because the rich are so likely to not acknowledge their need. The money covers it up. The money keeps me from having to recognize I'm broke. I'm I'm empty. Now folks, as I as I read James 5, and I I I did approach the passage a little bit different today. You know, if you come here a lot, normally when I open a passage, I start working through the passage, right? You can kind of go down verse by verse. Okay, there's this point there, there's this point. At least I hope that's what you find happening. Right? I'm I mean I'm just kind of going I didn't do that today. I I mean I I that's not really I didn't say now look at James 5 verse 2, look at James 5 verse 4. Now, I I I didn't do that. Because as I read this passage, i tell you what I got overwhelmed with. Here's this, this group of people that God is giving this very harsh warning to. And folks, that group of people, that's who we envy. We envy. We want to be like. We want to have what this group of people, God's delivering this incredibly harsh warning to. Now, I know there's some of you in here right now saying, I, I, don't, I, I don't envy them. I may be your problem, Pastor. It ain't mine. I I'm, I'm I don't envy anybody. Well, oh, good for you. <laughs> if we could all just be like you. <laughs> Folks, we open up the magazines to read how they do business. To see if it helps help us do business that way. You, you know why so much of TV is about the lifestyles of the rich and famous? You know why? Because we watch it. If nobody's watching it, it doesn't stay on TV. We watch it. We watch it, we read about it, we're lured by it. It constantly reminds us what we don't have. As a matter of fact, a lot of times we look at that and we say, man, I don't feel blessed of God. Do You know, when we don't feel blessed of God, you know what you're measuring that against? The rich. I don't have, I don't have, I don't have that. You didn't, you didn't do that for me. And so now I'm measuring God against this group of people that is heading to destruction. Surely, if we, we get to Psalm 73, we get to a James chapter 5, and clearly we have to hear God saying, Are you sure you want to envy this group? You sure you want to be on the same path as the rich without God? Surely not, right? No. We, we, we don't want to be on that path. And yet, we envy them. We get stuck because we're constantly out there seeing what we don't have. When the question we need to be asking ourselves folks is. How are we going to be found righteous? Because that group we envy. That group that has so much. In the flash of an eye. We're going to see they're broke. They're broke. Because when you and I walk up to the door of death. All of sin's bill instantly comes due. And we're not in right standing with God, and we're not in right standing with man. And here again, uh, with man, and here again, that's not a statement about the rich. that's a statement for all economic levels. It's true for every single one of us, they're broke. You want to be like people who go into eternity, broke. But that still leaves the question,, well, but how do I become righteous? Because I sin. I'm a sinner, so do you. I'm not righteous. I'm not in right standing with God and mankind. How, how could that ever be true of me? There's like a hundred verses I could share with you now. It's the most exciting good news of the Bible. Let me share one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin. To be sin. You know, there, there's a passage in Colossians that says all of our sins, our activities, the things you did wrong this week... The things you should have done but didn't do. That that stuff, all of that activity is taken and nailed to the cross. It's nailed to the cross. But there's something more going on here than just an activity. This didn't say sins. He made him to be sin. Jesus became the identity of sin. Jesus became the face of sin. Because that's what you are. And that's what I am. See, it wasn't just the bad things we did. Folks, our problem is much worse than we did some bad things. We are sin. We are rebellion against God. That's our identity. And that's what God the Father took and put on his Son. Jesus became our sin. He didn't sin. That wasn't his identity. It wasn't his activity, but he took that on. Do you know why? Because God is just. God does offer love and God does offer forgiveness. But that love and forgiveness isn't because God just says, ah, You you, you did your best. It's no big deal. Your sin wasn't that bad. Folks, you want a just God. You want a God that takes on and deals with the sin and the evil and the rebellion of this world. The problem is you are and I am the sin and the evil and the rebellion of this world. It has to be dealt with. And it's dealt with at the cross. That's where it is punished. That's where justice is met. And now with justice satisfied, as God took all of my sin, my actual activity, my actual identity, and put it on Christ. You know what he does then? He takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts it in my account. And now when I move into eternity, when you move into eternity, I can stand there. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, righteous in God. I can stand there in right standing with God, in right standing with mankind. What a miracle. And what you see in Scripture, what you see with Jesus, is some of the harshest warnings toward the rich. Now this hasn't been our focus this morning. Toward the rich and the religious. Because those are the two most common things that people depend upon instead of Christ. I said the two most common folks, you and I depend on lots of things to tell ourselves. I'm good. I'm okay. I don't have anything to fear. I, 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 you know, I, we may be depending upon our unbelief. I'm not weak. I don't need to believe in that. That's what I'm counting on. What, what makes me right is I don't have to believe in all that foolishness. We depend on all kinds of things to tell ourselves we're okay. What the scriptures and Jesus often deliver the harshest warnings to is... The rich, because it covers up the need, and the religious, because look how good I am. I've checked all the little boxes, I've met all the little duties, look at the good works I have, and so we go up to the door of heaven, standing there with our riches, our religiosity. We're not righteous. We're only found righteous in Christ. See, what did, what did James 4:17 4, 4, say, "If you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, that's a sin. See, you now know today, the only opportunity I have standing before God is to be found in Christ. Are you in Christ? If you're not, if you're not sure that you are, then the one right thing you can do today is move into Christ. And that opportunity is here for you today. Now, before we wrap up, and and we're running long, I want to finish here. But James 5 kind of is a thou shalt not. James 5 is kind of showing us the negative picture. I'd like to end this morning on the positive picture. We, we just heard a message to the rich without God. But God has a message for the rich with God. And my friend, you are the rich. I, there's just no other way to break it down. There's I know in America, they're you're not compared to them. Yeah, I'm a pastor. I'm a, I'm a spiritual guide, right? So my job is to tell you this. I'm going to, you're going to see in just a moment I'm doing exactly what the scripture tells me to do. When you go and stand before God you will stand there as the rich of humanity. You will stand there as the rich in human history. You may not feel like it. You may think that's the craziest, dumbest thing you've ever heard. I am telling you for a fact you will answer to God as the rich. Okay? Because there's... Billions behind you that will never enjoy what you enjoy. So let's see what the scripture positively says to the rich with God. I'm reading a passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. That's where I'm starting. Yet true religion, some, some translations will say godliness. Yet true religion with contentment is great wealth. Man, I'll tell you something. If you're, if you're godly, if you're walking with God and you have contentment... You own the world, man. You've got everything at that point. Yet true religion with contentment is great wealth, great wealth. After all, we didn't bring anything with us when we came into the world and we certainly cannot carry anything with us when we die. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Boy, that's hard, isn't it? I mean, folks, I'll be honest with you. I'm not, I'm not content with just food and clothing. i i I want more than that. I'd, I think probably a lot of us do. But it says that's really what we need to work at is that we can be content. We can be at peace when those things are covered. Verse 9. But people who long to be rich. The operative word there is not rich. The problem's not being rich. The problem is what happens in that longing. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money, not money, money is not the root of evil. The love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money, that's what we've been talking about this morning. Some people craving money have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many sorrows. I'm ending at verse 10. Let me pick up in verse 17. Tell those who are rich in this world, See, folks, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to because you're the rich. You are the rich of this world. 98 out of every 100 people are behind you. Tell the rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which will soon be gone, but their trust should be in the living God who richly... See, God doesn't have a problem with the word rich. Who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and should give generously to those in need, always being ready to share with others whatever God has given them. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to do just that right there. God, I pray as we walk through this week, you'd you'd give me a fresh awareness of how my brain is working (laughs) What my eyes are seeing. And Lord, help us to see how much we really envy and long for and are making our life about, about something we don't have. Lord, show us where maybe we need to guard against that, protect that. How we do grow and, and build and get better and get more, but without it slipping into that envy where it's affecting us. Our relationship and how we relate with others and our our relationship with you, God. Father, help us to deal with the reality that we will stand before you as the rich of this world. And based on like a passage we just read, start thinking about, "Am am I ready to stand before God and be found faithful with all that's been given? Lord, we need your help for this. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.